Well, where has the time gone? Believe it or not, next week is the first Sunday of Advent, which begins our new church year, and we begin preparing for Christmas. How is that possible already? (laughs) Which means that today is the last Sunday of the liturgical year, and we have then come full circle from the Advent we began last year. So today is what we celebrate as the Feast of Christ the King, and it seems quite fitting to end the church year in celebration of the sovereignty of Christ um, as Lord over all peoples, all nations, and all of creation. We're celebrating the triumph of God's kingdom over sin and death, God's righteousness and love as all victorious. Lutheran scholar Frank Sen explains that the Feast of Christ the King Um, With the Feast of Christ the King, we are proclaiming Christ as the goal of human history, the focal point of the desires of history and civilization, the center of humankind, the joy of all hearts, and the fulfillment of all aspirations. So then, what do we make of that gospel text? Jesus being crucified on the cross between two criminals? It seems so far removed from the lofty words that the Apostle Paul declares about the Lordship of Christ as the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of creation in whom all things in heaven and earth were created. Or those robust lyrics of Martin Luther proclaiming our God as a mighty fortress and a bulwark never failing. What kind of king reigns from cross? And what does it mean for us to follow that king? So, of course, these 10 verses from Luke's gospel that we heard are just a tiny snippet of the full narrative of Christ's passion, the drama that we're used to hearing during Holy Week. And here we are at the most, perhaps, excruciating point of the story in Golgotha, or the place of the skull, where Jesus is crucified alongside two criminals, one on his left and one on his right. We don't know exactly what these men have done to deserve their punishment, but we do know that crucifixion was a death sentence doled out to those who had committed a treasonous crime against the Roman Empire. So enemies of the state, we think, Uh, insurrectionists perhaps. And above Jesus' head, there's an inscription declaring, this is the king of the Jews. Now the sign has been put there in order to humiliate Jesus. It's an irony as if to say, what kind of king is this hanging between two criminals? It's meant to mock Jesus, but it also serves as a clear warning for anyone else who might dare to challenge Roman authority, that they too are at risk for suffering the same fate. Now the soldiers as agents of the Roman Empire and the Pharisees as religious leaders are jeering and taunting Jesus, daring him to wield his power, yelling to him, save yourself. I mean, after all, that's what a secular ruler would do when they're they're pushed into a political corner. And so we hear that one of the criminals alongside Jesus joins in this taunting, perhaps hoping against hope that Jesus will wield such power that can save himself and both he and his other, his other uh, criminal on the other side. But Jesus refuses. 
See, what the taunters didn't understand is that Jesus, when he proclaimed God's kingdom, is not advocating a political power or an earthly kingdom. He's advocating an entirely different way of being in relationship with one another in God's realm, where power is made known through vulnerability. The only power Jesus wields is in forgiving the sins of those who crucified him and inviting the criminals on either side of him to embrace the hope of life in God's reign. From that place of vulnerability, Jesus fully embodies the weakness, humiliation, and rejection of all those in the world who have been cast aside, rejected, or humiliated. On the cross, God turns the notion of power upside down choosing vulnerability to reach down to us in our own places of hurts, in our own vulnerabilities, our own brokenness, and invites us as well to embrace the hope of new life in God's kingdom. But the second criminal recognizes in Jesus what the others could not. This power of Christ's vulnerability and love and, uh, and forgiveness extending to him, even him, And with his last breath, he acknowledges his own guilt and asks instead, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I think it seems like a very stunningly bold request. But it's also such a very authentic longing to want to be known and remembered by God. I mean, is it fair to say that we all want to be known and remembered by God? I mean, we want to be remembered. We want to be remembered well, perhaps for the life that we've tried to live, for the love that we've tried to share, for the faith that we have claimed, for the impact our life has had on others. So in light of the criminal's request, I want you to listen to what Christian writer Frederick Buechner says about remembering. When you remember me, it means that you have carried something of who I am with you that I have left some mark of who I am on who you are. It means that you can summon me back to your mind, even though countless years and miles may stand between us. It means that if we meet again, you will know me. It means that even after I die, you can still see my face and hear my voice and speak to me in your heart. For as long as you remember me, I am not entirely lost. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Beekner says, there are perhaps no more human words in all of scripture, no prayer we can pray so well. I mean, these words, remember me, are significant in other places in scripture as well. Think about in Exodus, when the enslaved Israelites cry out to God in their suffering, God hears them, remembers the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and acts upon it. And at the Last Supper, Jesus breaks and blesses bread, instructing his disciples to do the same in remembrance of him. And so we do the same as we gather around this communion table. We remember Christ and call on his presence among us. And so in response to the man's dying plea for mercy and to be be remembered, Jesus promises him with great love, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. 
In this very bleakest moment of his crucifixion, Christ's promise shines through the darkness, pointing light to the eternal realm of God, where there is no more sorrow or brokenness or mourning, where love and justice, peace and mercy prevail. And we are in the very presence of God. Is that not what we pray every Sunday when together in our own languages we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we stand in this already but not yet nature of God's kingdom, we long for God's eternal realm. But the kingdom of God is our hope and our mission here now on earth as well. Now, it's interesting, earlier in Luke's gospel, when a Pharisee asked Jesus when the kingdom of God is coming, Jesus tells him the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. In fact, the kingdom of God is among you. And that is our hope and our mission as people who worship the kind of king that hung on a cross between two criminals whose power is expressed through vulnerability and self-giving love and forgiveness and inviting all people to embrace the hope of new life in God's kingdom. We follow the kind of king that calls us beloved and invites us to practice God's reign here on earth with vulnerable and self-giving love in the world around us. Now, in recent weeks, I've been going back to the writings of some of the voices who have influenced me since early on in my faith journey. And I think their words around this bring much wisdom still. It endures over many decades. Now, I was a teenager when Mother Teresa of Calcutta, or should I say now, Saint Teresa of Calcutta, became known around the world for her ministry of love for the poor, orphaned, and dying of Kolkata. And her life was a profound witness to living between the already but not yet nature of God's kingdom. We all long for heaven where God is, she wrote, but we have it in our power to be in heaven with him right now, to be happy with him at this very moment. But being happy with him now means loving as he loves, helping as he helps, giving as he gives, serving as he serves, rescuing as he rescues, being with him for all the 24 hours, touching him in his distressing disguise. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was on the front lines of leadership during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s in the United States, King was a staunch advocate of nonviolent resistance against the powers of racism, hatred, and discrimination. And he held a vision of the beloved community where radical love leads to justice, peace, reconciliation, and flourishing for all people. He was convinced it was a realistic and achievable goal, but not without struggle and deep commitment. Love is creative and redemptive, King said. Love builds up and unites. Hate tears down and destroys. The aftermath of the fight with fire method with which you suggest is bitterness and chaos. The aftermath of the love method is reconciliation and creation of the beloved community. 
Physical force can repress, restrain, coerce, destroy, but it cannot create and organize anything permanent. Only love can do that. Yes, love, which means understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill, even for one's enemies, is the solution to the race problem. You know, we are being reminded today that we are called to be visible witnesses to Christ's reign, not only eternally, but in the now, in the moment here on earth. And in order to do this, we need to be in community together, willing to be in vulnerable relationships together, understanding that our humanity is bound up in one another's humanity. Desmond Tutu illustrated this by describing a light bulb that shone brightly and proudly. It began to strut about arrogantly, quite unmindful of how it could shine so brilliantly, thinking that it was all due to its own merit and skill. One day, the light bulb is taken out of the socket and placed on a table. And try as hard as it could, the light bulb could bring forth no light and brilliance. It had never known that its light came from the power station and that it had been connected to the dynamo by the little wires and the flexes that lay hidden and unseen and totally unsung. We practice the reign of Christ in community together as we come to worship and as we pray and study and we're in fellowship with one another being vulnerable and sharing of ourselves and our resources, caring for those who are overlooked, in need. What a joy it is to welcome new members to our beloved community, this work in progress as we stand in the midst of the already and not yet, to practice the reign of Christ in community together, and indeed it is a gift that must not be taken for granted. So I invite us to continue to be about the work of God's kingdom here in our midst with hope and strength and community. And in the spirit of Paul's words to the Colossians, I offer this prayer. May we be made strong with all the strength that comes from Christ's glorious power. And may we be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to God who has enabled us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. Come, Lord, and open in us the gates of your kingdom. Amen. <laughs>